Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Paul Ward. He is the founder of Blacktop Coaching. He comes from a background in retail management. He spent the last four years independently training and coaching executives. He's an NLP trainer and a motivational mapper. Paul, welcome. Hi, Marcus. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your background and how you got to this point in your career? Sure, absolutely. As, as you kindly mentioned in the intro there, I started my, my career mainly in retail and stepped into management, accidental management more than anything else. <laughs> through that process sounds like a sales career path absolutely absolutely yes. <laughs> i was good at it and someone suggested i should follow that path uh, uh, but certainly along the way i, I gained a, a deep interest in what made my teams tick it wasn't necessarily what i was asked to do but that was what i found interesting as a result i found myself reading more and more and more personal development books believing that actually all I was doing was gaining some knowledge on how to, how to help others. But of course, I was reinforcing what was going on with myself. So it was a level of self-coaching that went on. But uh, through that, I, I, I thought, well, actually, it would be fantastic if I could follow this as a career path. And over time, left retail management, took my NLP practitioner course, became a motivational mapper at the same time started using NLP in coaching, became a master practitioner of NLP, a trainer of maps, um, set up my own business following redundancy, uh, which was the kick that I needed, and um, set up uh, Blacktop Coaching and now operating as one of only two trainers of maps and NLP globally and um, thoroughly enjoying the work that I'm doing. Looking at your career, you've worked in some pretty tough retail environments, Poundland, uh, B&M Retail, YMCA, Age UK. Those are difficult retail businesses. It must have been quite baptism of fire going through that process. What, what, were your, what were the blind spots that you spotted along the way that made you realize why coaching was so important? I think that it was the disconnect between what we were instructed as a, as a management team across the board to implement within our stores to hit the numbers. And yet what we were really dealing with, of course, was not the implementation of it was more onboarding this team of diverse people to all point in the same direction. And what I discovered over time was that the bit that was missing was, was, was coaching and developing this team to see why they were doing it, as opposed to here's a task, complete it, here's a task, complete it. And that's, that was the bit that I found was missing. And, and yeah, you're right, that, that was a, a, a tough environment. Retail still is, and particularly right at the moment. It is, it is hugely, um, the, the, the disappointing thing is, is that for somebody who's entering into work for the first time, retail is a fantastic opportunity to develop a, a huge variety of skills, your interaction with the public, interaction with a team, working independently maintaining standards, hitting targets, all those things are a good grounding for so much more later in life. Yet the reward for doing those things is, is very low. And the, the career path, actually, I still kind of inwardly smile to myself when I'm in a retail environment and I, I spot supervisors or management. And you can usually spot them because they're the ones that look most tired, that <laughs> most worn out. And, and of course, in order to cut the corners, in order to improve, they have to simply work harder. 
and there's no emphasis put on, well, how can we actually develop these individuals to become better leaders? It's just managing a process, managing a process and repeat. And, and to me, that was, that was enjoyable for a while. But it became the incentive to move on, without a doubt. Okay. Um, so that, that's really interesting. So let's start with the subject of coaching, which is what today's uh, conversation is primarily about. What, what is coaching, really? Coaching for me is, it's it's certainly a method in which we can really explore why people do the things that they do. Once that has been uncovered, we can then spot opportunities. Well, actually, where do you want to be? If we look at the person that you want to become or the career that you want or the business that you want to be running, to explore the differences between the two and be able then to work people, move people systematically towards that by stretching them, moving them closer and, and challenging. It's a part that actually, when I, again, look back at my retail days that I was doing all the time, I was challenging people just to reach their, their, their op- optimum point and encourage them to go beyond it. And I think to me, that's what I do in my coaching now. I see people who are operating within bandwidth that I want to stretch that bandwidth with their support and holding them accountable for what they say they're going to do to achieve the things they want to do. So taking people from from what they believe they should be doing to what they want to be doing. So that then looks at this subject of motivation. Can you help someone who doesn't want to be helped? It's it's very tricky to help someone in that situation. Um, I've talking of motivation and specifically the motivational maps, I often find that the most challenging people to help in those situations are those that come out as as highly motivated within the maps, that they assume that actually they're in a place where everything is working for them. And maybe at a level it is. So therefore their resistance to change is quite strong. Having the the opportunity to work with somebody in those situations, and this is where I really enjoy my training side of my, my coaching work, to be able to, to stand in a, room, in a room and explain possibilities, alternative ways of thinking, which often is enough just to sow the seed in those that are resistant to change for them to think in a slightly different way. Well, actually, things are working well for me, but, but what if? Just to leave that, that a question hanging for them, the what ifs, if I was to approach this from a different angle, where would it lead me to? So can you define the difference between coaching and training? Yeah, so, uh, well, my view certainly is, so, uh, so my training, when I'm in a training room doing a seven-day NLP practitioner course, for example, I'm imparting information. I'm giving that information of what's on the slides, what I've, what I, the training course I went on, the train, trainer course, uh, and giving that information out slipping from that into applying that training into real situations and making a difference for others is bringing people in more into the coaching arena in the sense of actually making things work. So for example, I have a lot of my coaching clients who come on to my NLP training with a view of actually once they have been through the coaching process and can see how removing limiting beliefs, for example, has unlocked some possibilities for them of where they want to be. The training takes kicks in to the point where actually they, they learn what's been going on to help them get to that stage. So, so they can then use what they've learned to have a positive effect on the people around them as well. And what's the difference between coaching and mentoring? 
classic question and uh, lots of different answers. For me, mentoring is a situation where you are taking somebody um, to, a, to a space uh, to improve in their situation, encourage them to learn, develop and grow in a certain space, usually where you have done it yourself or you have a level of experience. Coaching is more about how you go about it. And I love a story that, um, that links back to my retail days that, that I think kind of sums it up. And we had a, a, a group, coaching group, come in to work with us as um, associates. And it was headed up by a, a famous swimmer, Adrian Morehouse. And he tells a story of when he was at uh, the Olympics. Uh, one year, he'd done a lot of training. He had a coach. Got to the final, uh, dived in. Everyone was expecting him to win gold, and he finished seventh. And everyone had written his career off and, uh, and, and slated him. He came back, got himself a new coach, spent some time uh, really working hard, following Olympics, same situation. He's in lane four, about to dive in, up and down, and wins a gold medal. Now, the, the swimming's really, really interesting that he's, he's won the gold medal. But to me, this is the difference between coaching and mentoring, that mentoring would be somebody who's been a fantastic swimmer, then working with Adrian Morehouse, going through all the techniques to get him to, to swim faster and better and all those things. The coach that he had absolutely coached him from where he was to where he wanted to be and finally achieved his outcome. And the interesting thing for me is that new coach that he applied can't swim. So he wasn't a swimmer. <laughs> so, so to me... I kind of like telling that story to answer the question of the difference between coaching and mentoring. I think that that, that coach who couldn't swim was a pure coach in that sense. Got it. So mentoring is really taking someone or working with someone whose history is your desired future, whereas coaching is the coachee to work out the solution for themselves through questioning a very Socratic approach, helping them to solve their own problem and maybe filling in the 20% they can't, but uh, working in partnership with them rather than a more parent-child type of approach with mentoring. I think so. I think, I think there's a, a specific outcome with mentoring. There's, there's specific outcomes with coaching, of course, as well. But I go certainly go into my coaching with a view of no pre, predetermined ideas of where I'm going to take this individual and explore all aspects of the individual's situation, their life, where they want to be, you know, where they want to be in terms of um, how they want to feel about things that are going to be moving forward, how they interact with others and their social interaction, maybe the way in which they think about the world around them and their connection with something bigger, perhaps, than what's going on. So working with the whole individual in that sense to me is 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 coaching it, it is it, it's it's taking somebody in and completely um understanding the way they're currently thinking to where they want to be thinking and the effect it can have on on the outcome in my coaching work i've always found that coming with an open mind that sort of child mind learning where they think they are and learning where they believe they are limited but recognizing that actually they have masses more potential. Because in my experience, I mean, I've been coaching for the last 20, 25 years, and almost without exception, their starting point is just a glimmer of 
the true potential that people have. And I think part of the challenge here is so much of people's belief system has been instilled in them through their early year, formative years, through school, through their early career, through parenting, in terms of what they can and can't do, their place in society, and someone like them. I think a coach's, uh, one of the coach's jobs is to help them see the possibilities rather than the probabilities. And this is where motivational maps are really very powerful because understanding what drives a human being at an individual level gives you insight into how to position your questions. So let's bring in the motivational maps as part of the conversation. Introduce people to the concept, first of all. What what are motivational maps? Motivational maps is uh, an online questionnaire tool that over uh, a 10 minute question process produces a report which essentially puts your nine key core motivators in a order of preference in order of strength importantly as a snapshot of where you are right now as to where your energy is flowing right now so whether you are highly motivated by freedom or whether you're highly motivated by security and stability we can gain a snapshot from using the motivational maps as to what is important to that individual right now. And by extension, as a practitioner, you can discover how well satisfied each of those motivators are in the current situation, which gives you clues and insights as to where this individual maybe is feeling satisfied or may need some work in where where they need to be. I've certainly found them very interesting and useful in the recruitment process but also um, in terms of working with teams to identify people who are being underserved in those areas uh, that are important to them and that may represent a flight risk. And uh, also looking at how a manager's motivations align or misalign with individuals within their team that might be resulting in a disconnect. And if you look at the reasons why people leave a role, uh, more often than not, it's because they're unable to do their best work. They don't feel stretched or there's too much work. One of the other big reasons is that the manager doesn't really appreciate them. So if we look at the way people are compensated, people are measured, can often give a very good indication why one size doesn't necessarily fit all even though they may be in the same role. So can you talk about how understanding that has then helped um, senior leadership modify their approach to how they measure, how they compensate, and how they recognize and reward people in order to ensure that they get the best out of their people? Having that opportunity to see a team map resulting from the individuals, all of the individuals' maps being pulled together so often is the case with mapping a team of individuals in business. It's usually the business owner that's called you in to have that to start that process, and usually the business owner that is expressing their their views, their concerns, and where they would like things to go, what outcome they would like from this whole process. And uh, and off you pop as a as a practitioner, as a motivational map practitioner, and working with the team, you do you do the the individual maps, you have the individual conversations. And you look at the data that comes through and so often it's that conversation of coming back to the business owner to say, well, do you know what? 
I think it's your view that actually is 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 having a, a, a less than positive effect on the way in which this team is operating. And, and I find that actually a really useful conversation for certainly clearly open-minded business owners that are prepared to take on this feedback. We don't always have them, but certainly if you can get into that situation. And to be honest, Marcus, I think that, that this is where NLP and an experience of coaching enhances the map process. So there's wonderful information that can be gleaned from individual and team maps, but then also to be having the conversation as to what this means to the individual, particularly the senior management or the business owner, as to what needs to fundamentally change about their own map of the world, their own model of what, what good looks like, their own model of how to reward, as you just said. Because, of course, that is going to put them in a situation where their own thinking is going to be tested, is their own thinking is going to be challenged. And in order for them to, to get the outcomes they want, it's going to require a level of flexibility from them. So actually, the ability to, to work with a business owner or senior manager in that way, to give them some support and, of course, coaching, to see the opportunities, to see that, um, that possibility of a different outcome, comes right back to your earlier question of those who people who aren't ready to change. Now, of course, if you're the business owner, there's a very good chance that you have a, a clear vision of where you want to take the business, and that's what you want to focus on. You want the problem of the, the people problem to sort itself out, and that's why we often get invited in. But, of course, it's how those people are led that's the key thing as to how they perform. So, so encouraging the business owner to see, think, and act in a different way as a response to the information provided by the team motivational map is a journey that we need to take them on. So that then very neatly brings me to my next question, which is around leadership, coaching, middle management, because I think middle managers are often the most exposed, most precarious people within the organization. And they're being squeezed to both ends. First of all, why is it that managers are so infrequently given coaching? Well, it's, uh, I'll just make in and out of the word you use there, squeezed. The thought I had in my mind as well was being pushed and pulled, you know, and stretched in different ways. Right. So it's just interesting how that, that dynamic works. I think in so many ways that the, um, the the senior leadership are thinking in such big strategic terms. There's a mismatch in communication as to how how that is then led down. And I started, didn't I, with talking about my experience of management in retail, yeah. delivering what was expected of me from a, a you know a, a more senior senior angle, and. There's an element, I always find there's an element of being told of just achieving targets, of just achieving what's been put in front of you. And um, it's, it's man, that middle management kind of sector is a little bit more about implementing what is required as opposed to actually being creative, coming up with new ways of doing things. Um, so therefore, uh, where coaching could be applied at that level there is a um, maybe there's a fear attached to that from from a higher level that these people will go in too much with different directions there's a lot of control around that 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 space and by applying the control we're, we're kind of 
almost shaping the outcome. So it's <clears throat> maybe coaching is seen as a dangerous thing at that level that you know we're going to go in too many different directions if we open up too many possibilities. I have a, a slightly different perspective on this um, in that I think often when organizations hire experienced people, they have this mentality that, well, I've just hired a grown-up, let them get on with the job. And certainly in a sales environment, coaching and training of veteran salespeople is often doesn't happen or is seen as... Uh, Oh, well, I don't need to. They're, they're already the finished article. And you only have to look at the disappointing performance of salespeople across the globe. In 2020, only 40% of salespeople hit their quota. Now, that was ex an extraordinary year. But 2019 was a, meant to be a good year, and only 44% of salespeople hit their quota. So the reality was that many people were underperforming. And I see this in management frequently, where managers are tapped on the shoulder because they're a good operator or good producer, then they get moved into management with zero runway. And they get told, Paul, your predecessor's just been fired. Congratulations, you are one. So they do what was done to them. Now, the challenge here is that if you want to create an environment where you create a learning culture where you're encouraging creativity. You need to trust your people. And from what you've just said, it sounds like there is a significant deficiency in trust because people who want to control things don't trust their people not to work towards the mission and purpose of the business. And by controlling them, that constraint, then that's a negative constraint. It's not one that fuels creativity, it suppresses it. If that is the kind of environment someone is working in, and they're a manager who wants to do better, what advice would you give to them about navigating, managing up, and still being able to develop their own people in order to help them become more fulfilled and more productive? just thinking about certain examples and, and I was on a call recently discussing burnout in middle management because of that, that push and pull that squeeze we've just talked about there and the way you've just described it in wanting to do better often equals work as hard as I possibly can which doesn't always bring results so it's well, it brings so, results not the ones you want though no no <laughs> you certainly can't enjoy them when you're flat on your back as a result but uh in simple terms, it's looking at what, what you can do in terms of leadership, in terms of implement. I've used that word many times, but implementing the tasks that have been set you, but looking at what you can manage through your team, what you can enhance from the people around you. To feel the pressure, what I've seen so often with, with that group of managers is there is a sense of burnout. There is a sense of pressure because they feel that actually it's only they that have that pressure to achieve. And are taking on a lot of of that higher level pressure instead of pushing it across and out to those around them. So it's almost a case of actually, yes, it would be great if all the middle managers had all access to really good quality coaching to help them gain leadership skills. We need to start perhaps with what they do with their own people to apply it to their own people. So actually, they're getting a bit of breathing space. So to take them from from being at cause with the problems 
and really taking ownership so that they can use the the knowledge and awareness that they have of how to get things done to pass that on to their teams. So we're getting results because I think it's just a matter of breathing space is all they would need. Because I was speaking from my own experience, I gained some breathing space to be able to explore coaching for myself. And we're talking there about applying a coaching culture perhaps into a business. That doesn't always work. My experience in retail was that the the business brought in a culture, a culture of coaching, brought an external company in. And there was a lot of good stuff being talked about, but it wasn't applicable to the end user. It wasn't working down on the shop floor, as it were. But it certainly gave that level of management, that middle management group, an opportunity to see that actually if we apply some of the learnings that we're being talked about at senior level of people going off on three-day workshops, we didn't have actual time to complete. That actually if we just took some of the learnings from it and were allowed to adapt that to get results. So it was a level of actually releasing control that gained better results. So allowing that level of freedom to play, as it were, to enjoy what you're doing, we still kept a very close eye on the results and what we needed to achieve. But actually, we got the benefit of realizing by spreading the load, we achieved an awful lot more. I see this pattern happening time and time again. I don't know whether it's a particularly British thing, the idea that if you work harder, things will change. More is not better. More is just more. and. Part of the challenge here is that in addition to coaching, we need to create that space and we need to reflect. And as managers, if you are just constantly running around like a blue ass fly, trying to put fires out all the time, you're probably the chief arsonist as well as the head fire officer. And that is a self-destructive cycle. So In terms of the discipline of creating space and self-reflection, what advice would you give to hard-pressed middle managers so that they can self-coach if they're not getting the coaching from uh, above? Mm, I think the best way to answer that is, is probably to give my own experience of how I worked myself out of my role in in retail in the sense that I'd spent a lot of time delivering and implementing uh, what was required of me, which included people development, which included moving people on. I was was very passionate about applying my learnings from coaching books and self-development books to work with my teams. So as soon as I had a good person coming through the ranks, I spent uh, spend my time with their personal development meetings looking at how I would move them on to something bigger and better, more and better. And it happened quite a lot. I was, I was, I was moving people through to getting shops of their own, working in, and having teams of their own. And I was noticing that when they were working for me, they seemed really full of energy and, and motivated and moved them into their own team. And I would see them at other meetings and looking exhausted as the rest of us. So this continued until I actually came uh, came in contact with a young lady who came to work for me in a, in a, a management role within the team. And I was having my personal development review with her, talking to her, coaching her, leading her probably into a direction of if you could, uh, you're doing exceptionally well, you could have your own shop at some point and, and got no response from her. 
didn't have the access to motivational maps at this time. So I didn't have, I had no insights other than what I believed to be the right thing. So I was giving a very self-biased approach on what I believe was right for her. And she turned to me and she said, Paul, you haven't asked me the question. I said, what question is that? And she said, well, you never asked me whether I want my own shop. And that was a light bulb moment for me as a manager to realize that actually I'm not meant, I believe I'm measured on how well I progress people out of my team. What I then discovered from that point was actually going around and talking to people and saying, what is it you really enjoy about your current role? What do you think you can really bring to this team? And by following that process from that conversation, I recall being stood on my shop floor looking around thinking to myself, I no longer have a purpose here. Everybody is doing exactly what I need them to do, which created that space for me to do the things that I wanted to move on to, which in my case was choose to move on to, to move away from that particular business. But I use that as an example in coaching now with middle management to say, well, actually, working harder is not going to get you what you want. Look at what you've got around you. In NLP, we use the phrase, there's no such thing as unresourceful people, just unresourceful states. So look at the resources that are around you. Allow that as an opportunity with an intention of creating the space in which you can stop, change the patterns of behavior so that you can lead in a different way, which will get you different results. Otherwise, you end up in that cycle of just regurgitating. Whichever business you go in, if middle managers are struggling, it's bizarre because they're always, as we've discussed, they're always the ones who look most under pressure, most tired, seem to have more work than anybody else. And the team around them just seem to be appearing, doing what they need to and going home again. By creating that space, they can put themselves back into a leadership position to be able to, to work with their teams, to spread the workload, achieve more and take that massive pressure off themselves so they don't feel squeezed anymore. So uh, again, I think you've touched on something which I don't see a lot of, particularly in smaller businesses, is that career pathing conversation and that cadence of engagement between staff member and manager to help them develop those skills before they move into their next role. That's what I was talking about when I was talking about the runway. One of the things that I've uh, implemented with the companies that I'm chief revenue officer for is that when we hire somebody, one of the earliest conversations we have is, okay, what next? What do you want to grow into? Mm. Uh, What are the skills that you're going to need to learn so that when you do move into that role, you're prepared and you're not just being thrown in at the deep end with concrete tied around your ankles? Then giving them an 18 to 24-month runway to learn those skills so that they learn to coach, to train, to mentor, to run a meeting, to do forecasting, to, to recruit, to interview, to hire, to onboard. You know, all of these things that if they want to move into management, if they want to move into a senior sales role, the planning, the strategizing, all that kind of stuff. If they want to move into channel sales, all of this kind of stuff. If you don't do that up front, then what you end up doing is taking someone who's a great producer and then turning them into a terrible manager. And so you get a double whammy then you suffer from turnover. So again, if we're looking at the measure of a great business, I think one of the really important measures is retention rates. So I'm curious in terms of your own experience where you've gone in and started coaching and the impact that that had on retention and um, you know, keeping talent within and experience within the business. Great point to make that it's... 
to, to provide your teams, particularly new recruits, with that that runway, as you call it. I think it starts with with the the senior management or the business owner to be able to be thinking that way. And I think that's where I have most of my conversations. In the business owner or the senior manager has a has a, a mindset of these people are in place. That's all I require at the moment to give me the opportunity to grow and develop the things that I want to. So it's almost like encouraging them to have that conversation you've just described, because I find that the businesses that I've worked with are perhaps not having that conversation. They're happy to get people to a level where where they are producing and not having that forward-thinking mindset from the outset of actually this is what we want from our people. Some companies that I've worked with, some businesses that accept that they have a high turnover and that's just the way it works. Whereas actually, what what would what if developed a business that didn't have that high turnover and had an opportunity for people to grow and develop them and develop them into the future managers? The, the, the block seems to be we don't have a career path. We just want people to improve on what they're doing. I hear that and I understand that, yet there are still opportunities we can give people in learning, growth and development. Even if their role doesn't change, it isn't a necessity that their role needs to change into a managerial role, particularly in a very small business. But there are other things, as we know from the motivational maps, that we can provide for our teams that will encourage them to feel far more motivated in their role. And as we know, a highly motivated team, a highly productive team, leading to higher profits. So if we still approach those conversations, maybe it's not about where you see yourself progressing within the business if there isn't a clear progression to be had. But how can we enhance your experience as an employee with this business by further training, further freedom, whatever it might be, so that we know from the outset what what it is that we're going to need to be doing to keep you engaged within this business. And what I'm glad to see is the businesses that I'm working with, particularly with the motivational maps, is there isn't an exercise that we do a one-off. It's integrating the thinking into the business that becomes a, 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 psych- a psychical event, but absolutely takes part as the onboarding process so that we understand what motivates a new recruit into the business so that we know where they fit within the team. And we also know in which way we need to be working with that individual on a, on a one-to-one basis to keep their motivation and engagement throughout when there isn't a career path progression within that particular business, which is a a challenge that a lot of small businesses have. They want to encourage people to to perform at a higher level within their own role without no thought of actually, I'm going to progress to a management role or where beyond. How frequently should one be running the motivational maps with individuals? I tend to work to a guide of around six months at a time for the whole team. I like to work with a team in the sense of mapping as soon as we start working. So we have a snapshot of where we're at so that any workshops, any one-to-one coaching or team team coaching can be measured after six months as to where we've got to. That seems to work very well. And if possible, integrating it into the um, yearly review process, the appraisal process, whatever you want to call it, so that we actually are seeing where people are are feeling energized in their role as opposed to talking very ambiguously about how they feel things are going for them right now. I do have a real problem with the concept of an annual review. 
it's basically a waste of time if you're not doing them more frequently. And I, I would always suggest at least uh, three or four times a year because um, a year, you know, if you do the performance review once a year, essentially that's institutionalizing the process, but it's not really a valuable management tool. If you're doing them quarterly, there's 90 days where you can come out of that performance review with clear actions that can be taken, which is a long enough time to do something meaningful, but not so long that it gets shoved into the boot of a car and only brought out and dusted down for the next performance review. So I would urge people to have more frequent reviews. And in terms of the cadence of coaching, what we see in my world is that on average, managers who coach individual salespeople for three to three and a half hours a month, and that can be formalized structured coaching, 20 minutes, half an hour on a weekly basis, plus on the job coaching and ad hoc coaching when they need specific uh, help. If they coach three to three and a half hours a month, the average quota attainment is 105%. Where the coaching cadence is less frequent than that, the average quota attainment is 40 to 60%. So it is a false economy. And it's also a bit of self-deception in my experience, because one of the biggest excuses I hear, and it is absolutely an excuse, uh, managers say, I don't have time to coach. And they allow coaching to slip, they sacrifice it, because some other fire has come about. If you do the coaching, then most of or many of your management problems go out the window. You don't have as many fires. Your people can be trusted to solve their own problems instead of having to solve you solve them and step in. And I think part of the problem here, and this is where I think coaching can be incredibly powerful, is at the leadership level, coaching middle management is to coach them how not to be a rescuer. Rescuing, in my definition, is helping without boundaries or permission. And um, managers who rescue have a tendency to suffer significantly from upward delegation. So the people you are paying to do the job delegate those jobs up to the manager, and then they dump those problems on their desk because managers don't know how to say no. And uh, Michael Brody waite has done some very in intensive research on this. And his finding is that managers who don't know how to say no lose, on average, 31 hours per month. Now, that's four days yep. a month. Now, if you had an, an additional four days to do with whatever you needed as a manager, how would you deploy it? What would you choose to do? Because many managers are doing their day job early mornings and evenings, weekends. So they never get a break. And all work and no play makes you know, Paul a boring bugger and also burns him out. So what advice would you give to leaders and managers who say they don't have time to coach? The situation you just explained there just, just creates a conversation to, uh, that, that emphasizes the importance of coaching. I think that, um, I mean, I have situations where I'm delivering workshops that get moved around because of the timing. We've not got time for this. We've not got time for that. And yet it's demonstrating that the actual 
subject matter, the actual theme of the coaching is often the solution to the problems that are being faced within the team, within the organization. And explaining and developing an understanding that actually, if you were to apply the learnings from this coaching, do we feel that we'd actually be in a better position as a result of having those conversations? But I think having a positive effect on the individual through your coaching conversations builds a real culture of of wanting to grow and develop. I think that the teams that I've been using in my mind as I've been answering your questions, one of the key themes of them is getting the, the for want of a better phrase, the one we've used already, uh, the producers on board with what the concept of coaching is all about. So from the bottom up kind of suggesting that actually, if I have a one-to-one coaching conversation with you the part-time member of staff that actually is delivering very, very great work, but actually I have a half an hour, 45 minutes with you, and you can see a positive effect and continue those conversations around the team, then actually it's it's feeding the need for coaching from the team to the managers. And the managers obviously can see that actually they even their one-to-ones, they got something from, but it's that time thing again, that actually batting away the possibility of giving up half a day to bring the whole team together to do a workshop on something that actually we could be getting far better things done. Breaking that mentality of of seeing it as a worthwhile exercise from the team upwards. Yeah, that actually we really value our time in which we're having our coaching experience. And this is the effect it has on our productivity, the effect it has on our engagement. So showing it from that, otherwise you're absolutely right that if, if, if senior management are handing a document so there's some boxes to fill on it, whether that be an appraisal process or a workshop or a coaching directive, then it's just not, not bringing it alive. I think that we as coaches have a huge responsibility to be able to work with the team in real situations to grow and develop their way of thinking and getting results quickly as a result of that so that it feeds itself over a period of time. I'm curious in uh, corporate, environments so what what kind of partnership um do you try and form with hr because i I think good hr is worth its weight in gold unfortunately it's often a place people go to die and end their careers and it's often used inappropriately as a cheap substitute for legal advice and they get the crappy end of the stick but really good hr is fantastically potent what what kind of partnerships do you create uh, with those sorts of folks I absolutely share your view on HR. I think that um, you know when you get the right people in the right place and, and they have a, a mindset that's close to coaching and developing to, to resolve potential issues in the future, the type of HR I love working with. And recent experience mapping a, a, a team of people uh, in, in a business that had external HR absolutely involved them in the process of the mapping process, included them in it. And encouraging that thought process, that mindset of actually, you know, if we deal with what drives people from an HR perspective, we deal with or work on what people want from their roles, what people want to create a happy, positive environment in which they're working. That's always going to create an opportunity for growth rather than an opportunity to for tribunal. And so, so to engage with those HR professionals at that point before any work is set on, I find hugely valuable. And I think that actually 
thankfully, my experience recently is that actually a lot more HR consultants, a lot more HR managers are thinking in that way to be able to reduce their workload by encouraging positive coaching experience with middle management, senior management and beyond. Because of course, if we're, we are upskilling our leadership teams with a coaching style, an opportunity to resolve issues before they become issues, then actually it's a win-win all the way through, to, through HR, through management, through the team to be able to work in a coherent way that actually is moving people towards solutions rather than problems. And HR absolutely play a fundamental place in that. I'm lucky to be able to sit here now and say my experience of the other side of HR has, has been quite limited recently. Um, and uh, whether that's a measure of where we're at right now, because obviously there's complexities that have been brought on by the situation we're in, rather than in the terms of growth and development, I'm not sure. Okay. Let's move on to another area that I think is uh, massively underutilized, which is peer-to-peer coaching and buddying. How can you help peers coach one another appropriately? And what are the ground rules that you need to establish so it doesn't become training and it doesn't become uh, something that diminishes people at an identity level? because you've established clear boundaries and uh, ground rules that protect both sides. Peer coaching, group coaching is something that I'm really interested in growing and developing around my community and network of of coaches. Inevitably, with, with NLP training and motivational map training, like I'm in contact with a lot of people who are setting up their own coaching practice of one form or another. And being able to to break down break through the barrier of trust um, early on is essential to realize that actually certainly in the coaching industry that there's an opportunity for us all to be operating in a certain way that's bringing growth and development to, to all of our clients so it's breaking down the, the 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 possibility of trust through removing comparison to compare my business to your business and my style to your style operating and i think my nlp training really helps with that in the sense of accepting that that everybody has a different view on the world and they're coming at these situations very differently. You and I work in a very different way in the type of people we work with, yet they're still fundamentally, we're working with human beings interacting with each other. And therefore that brings with it its own level of complexities. So in a peer group coaching type environment, to develop the psychological safety in which we can express ourselves and our frustrations and concerns, I think is essential. Achieving it is something very different. (laughs) That sounds like some scar tissue, maybe. Yes, and I'm going to share the story. (laughs) But I recall going to a a local coaching group of a a European-wide group. And I turned up first time a couple of years ago, and I sat in a room with... And I had those slight anxious thinking of, you know, am I, am I going to be at the same level as the people in the room, all that sort of stuff going on, as you do when you work on your own a lot. So I'm, I'm in a group of about 25, 30 other coaches that have differing levels of qualifications and skills and so on and so forth. Some people just, just started, some people have been going many years. And we went around the room as regards to what is it that we want from today. And so it was a true peer grouping, se- peer group coaching session. 
And I was hearing things such as, I want to learn today. I want to share my experience. I want to um, explore new ways of doing things. I want to make new connections and so on. And we went around the room and it got to me and I said, all I could really think of, and I generally was feeling this way, I said, I, I want to um, spend the next couple of hours really feeling that we're exploring psychological safety. And there was loads of really positive nods around the room and comments saying, yes, we feel you know, here's a space where we can express how we're thinking and put a hand up so we don't know this and all that sort of stuff. And I thought, well, this is going to be great. And we carried on and we had an exercise where we split into groups. But before we split into groups, there's a very experienced and excellent coach at the head of the room talking about kinesthetic coaching, using bits and material and, and, and items to, to help people express themselves. And she did a demo and talked about it and then split us into small groups, about four or five, and went with, with a little box of goodies to start doing things. And I could sense it around the rest of the room, and certainly in my group, three or four people in my group just went, did anyone understand what she was talking about? And I thought, well, that, therein is the problem. It's like in the small group, we're questioning it, yet in the bigger group, we're not doing it. You know, to be able to say, I'm sorry, it looks really interesting, but I'm really not sure what you're talking about. And that's something I, I aim to do very early on when I'm in, I'm in a peer group, to be able to, if necessary, put myself in that position of, I don't know what we're talking about here, or question something, to give the people in the room the opportunity to explore psychological safety in a way that actually they will leave thinking, actually, there's a weight off my shoulders here. That big thing I thought I was worrying about is shared by a lot of people and I can move forward with that. That's really important. So we trust psychological safety and, of course, above all, rapport within the group to achieve what it is we want to achieve. Very interesting. One of the themes that regularly comes up is a sense from people that they're either an imposter or they're not worthy. I hear this theme time and time again. They're afraid that they're going to get found out. And I, I think a lot of this stems from how people perceive failure. And I also think that people's egos are often very brittle. And they've been punished in the past for failing in role. And I want to make a very clear distinction for people listening that role failure is just that. You have failed in role. It's not a personality defect. Um, it's not a failure of identity. Uh, I think what's really important in order to deliver psychological safety is to make that distinction very clear very early on and keep reinforcing it. That role failure is fine. It's, you know, you, you just screwed up. You made a mistake. Everyone does it. But you've got to protect the person you are coaching's identity at all times. And you also have to make sure that you're not letting your values and belief system override or diminish their identity. Mm -hmm. And I think often people get intimidated and fear coaching. This happens especially where coaching becomes institutionalized and it feels like coaching is something of a punishment. It's like being forced to go to the gym. So uh, I'm curious in terms of your advice for someone who's new to coaching, they know it's something that could be valuable. How, how do you make sure that you create that psychological safety 
and that there is that clear distinction between role performance and identity. Yeah, it's um, it, it is, it's lovely to put that question to me today, just as I've, um, within the last couple of hours, had that exact conversation with somebody. And I'm um, just about to. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I think the, the word I wrote down as you were explaining that and then talking through that is I come across a lot of resistance to coaching particularly one-to-one, real sort of deep discovery type coaching that you know people are fearful of what they might find out. And one part of the process of the one-to-one coaching I use is, is, is breakthrough sessions. We look at what might be holding you back from your past. And so often I've sort of top level explained that part of the process and had the response of, I can't think of anything in my past that's holding me back. And it's usually with a nod that I move on to the next bit, thinking at some point we'll obviously be picking something up from the past that's holding you back because but the unconsciously that happens to all of us. So certainly, particularly when it comes to failure, because you'll have, every client will have a perception of failure that, that forms a pattern of where they end up in their career, in their business, in their relationship, in their life. So it's it's really interesting to notice how people will resist going back to find the root cause of the problem and instead actually, right, what I'd rather is just find a solution to find a way in which actually I can get past it without going back to the past. So I think that you know, uncovering the root cause of why people are uncomfortable with failure is, is interesting in itself. But certainly the the training we have around NLP, and I'm sure you've heard the phrase many times, no such thing as failure as only learning or feedback. You know, to be able to explore that in terms of, as you excellently put it, in terms of failing in a role or failing as a, as a human being are very, very different. Yet yeah, the two get muddied and mixed up constantly. And as you rightly say, the, the phrase imposter syndrome is just, just being bandied about everywhere at the moment. And Actually, well, actually, is, is that nothing more than just simply setting very high standards for yourself and not allowing yourself to achieve them? And I think that you hear people say phrases such as I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I wasn't uh, in the right place at the right time, whatever it might be. And it brings me back to a conversation I had with somebody who, who came was really in a, a, a high state of emotion because she felt she didn't love her children enough. And I questioned her and I said, okay, well, well, based on what? She said, well, I just don't feel I love them enough. I said, well, what would happen if you, um, if you moved that measure? If that measure wasn't there of enough, what would you be left with? She said, I'd be left with I love my children. I said, well, maybe that's something worth exploring, that the self, self-imposed barriers we put on ourselves is what's leading to most of the imposter syndrome that people are talking about. That actually, you know, it's a case of actually it's a good feeling. If I've got a feeling that, we're now labeling as imposter syndrome, maybe that's just an indicator to say there's an opportunity for more learning here. There's an opportunity to try something to see what the outcome is so that you've got a a clearer idea of what it is that you need to do in order to progress, to grow and develop uh, and see it from that point of view. And come back to another conversation I had where somebody was talking about, it was on the new Clubhouse app. I was in a room listening to people talking in, in, in Asia and one of the ladies was describing her journey to, to CEO and the importance of having an executive coach as she was going through that process. And she mentioned imposter syndrome in that. And the host also came back and said, I'm doing really, really well, but I accept I have my imposter syndrome. 
And when it was my turn to speak, I said, well, I'm, I'm just really interested and I'm really pleased to hear that you think the value of an executive coach to get you to the level you are. I totally, totally agree with that. So with this idea that you, you have your imposter syndrome, the ownership you're putting on your imposter syndrome, as opposed to seeing it as something completely detached, as these feelings that I'm labeling as imposter syndrome, if I'm wondering what's causing that, then I can do something about it. Yeah, a lot of people, I think, are using imposter syndrome as a reason why I'm not going to push myself beyond a certain barrier because it will demonstrate that I'm not good enough. So I like to work with people to move them through that process to understand what it is that we can we can develop so that they have that self-belief, that confidence. I think there are a couple of really interesting issues that are worth exploring just to wrap up. One is the intent that both parties in a coaching relationship turn up with. And the other side is the side of compassion, because I think the best coaches are accepting of who the person is, identity, and where they are in terms of their journey, their role, but also a high level of self-compassion is required on both sides. Often when you talk to senior executives, particularly in you know, fast-paced, hard environments, they sort of write this stuff off as fluffy and uh, a bit uh, bunny-hugging. But the, the reality is the power of those mental shackles on uh, holding people back, the limiting beliefs, or where someone is inc- has been incredibly successful and then their fear is that they're not going to be able to replicate it. And then th- there's this narrative that kicks on, uh, kicks off in their head about, well, what will people think? You know, am I a one-trick uh, one pony? Uh, am I going to let people down? I think what's really interesting is often people forget that the intent that got them to be successful in the first place, if they recall that and they go back to it, they can replicate that success. They can even better it because now they're more experienced. It's the lack of self-compassion that seems to be such a prevalent limiter of their ability to repeat past performance. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the level of self-compassion that's absent in many of my clients, just reflecting upon it whilst you were talking, and it was a, a big moment with a client recently that actually they are constantly in their mind underachieving, underachieving, setting themselves lots and lots of goals to achieve. Each one of them, in my mind, was a big goal in itself, but actually, you know, it's just trying to, to pull it back, pull it back, pull it back. But recognizing that the pattern of that was causing the, the lack of success of any of these goals was the lack of self-compassion, being kind to myself when I'm not achieving and being kind to myself when I feel Actually, the right thing is to set myself a dozen goals when actually I'd be far more effective if I set myself two and then actually do something with them. But it was that that expectation, very high expectation, high level of achievement that, that they felt that a person in their position should be achieving. And of course, they were never doing that because they were beating themselves up all the time. That scripting and that pattern of behavior, making uh, an assumption here, But my guess is that that comes from some form of earlier life experience. And that script is one they inherited or they borrowed. 
So that strikes me as uh, you know a great opportunity to go back and revisit those triggers. Now, when you do that, very often that releases a whole flood of emotion, and uh, people frequently, particularly if they're high drivers, get very embarrassed by that. How do you protect them so that they don't then say, "I'm never doing that again," and lock down? Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, very acutely observed because it is exactly exactly right in that situation that um, living up to parents' expectations from a very early age followed that through into into adulthood. It's a perfect example of the resistance to go back to to change those things, to to address those things, to understand that that's the driver, that's the direction that that's caused them to go in from from what's happened. So. I guess to answer your question more, more succinctly in regards to protecting them, certainly with the work that I do that's NLP-based is exploring the fact that actually I'm not particularly interested in the specifics. I'm not particularly interested in what happened when you were age six. What I am interested in is going back to explore what happened there that's causing you to behave in the way that you are now to create those limiting beliefs to to put those those shackles on yourself let's explore it in terms of actually what advice would you give yourself at that point in your life in your early life that would unlock the possibilities for now so a level of detachment from the situation as it is that if if you were to see it from another's point of view what would you what could you learn from it if you applied those learnings, it would set you off in a different track. And following that process very carefully in rapport with the client, we end up in a situation nine times out of 10 where it isn't about readjusting the, 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 the small goals to get me where I want to in the, in the long term. It's realizing that in true Stephen Covey fashion, we've lent our ladder against the wrong wall. We need to go find <laughs> another wall to lean against because we've been pushing ourselves and measuring our imposter syndrome, measuring our failures against our ability to climb that particular ladder when actually it's the wrong wall altogether and we come completely go somewhere else. So that freeing moment of, of being able to take your client back to release some of those blocks, subconscious blocks from early life, allows them to see the possibilities of who they could become. Whereas opposed to a lot of the energy, the negative energy that's about um, putting on themselves the pressure to achieve is within that bandwidth. Again, that constraint of what they believe they should be, where I should be at this point in my life, where I should be in terms of success, rather than actually what I really want to do is something that's completely over here. And if I do that, everything flows. So it's, it's creating that that ability and encouraging the possibility of flow by letting go of the scar tissue from the past. There is a key takeaway from this, which is stop shooting on yourself. And there is a fabulously, elegantly simple model in transactional analysis, TA, the I'm okay, you're okay model, which is healthy. But what you find is that people take the position of I'm not okay, you are okay. And that's the one down position. And that script is, I wish I could do that as well as you do. And people who are operating from there tend to be, I'm not okay with me. Then there's the hopeless position, which is, I'm not okay. You're not okay. Woe is me. This is terrible. We'll never make it. And that tends to mean that you perceive that someone else is not okay with you. And this is all about uh, taking on assume judgment 
and I'm not, I, I am okay, and you're not okay is the one-up position, which is you're not doing that right, let me show you. And this is the rescuer position. It's very dangerous. Whereas the, the healthy position is, yeah, we're making good progress now. It may not be perfect, but I'm okay, you're okay, and we accept where we are, we accept who we are. And I, I think part of the problem here is that people are so frequently controlled by these scripts. And I, I would urge people, if you're not familiar with TA, definitely to uh, explore that. There's a book called I'm Okay, You're Okay by Eric Byrne. It is exceptionally turgid and dry, but it is well worth a read. And transaction analysis, certainly I've found very powerful in the last 20 years I've been using it because it helps us to understand the dynamic of why we are so messed up and how to step out of our own way. Because I, I, I think I'd like to finish on this is uh, one of the most important lessons that you can draw from transaction analysis is that you will only perform to the level that your self-concept will allow. If you see yourself as a high performer, you will work towards achieving that. Um, and if you have the compassion, the self-forgiveness to recognize the difference between role performance and identity, then you can work towards that. It also means that you can ask for help. People who are occupying any of those negative positions, one up, one down, or hopeless, have a tendency not to be able to ask for help. And coaching is an incredibly powerful resource. And there is no shame in asking for help. In fact, it is the reason why we as a species have been successful is because we collaborate. We help one another. And trying to be an island and do everything for yourself, frankly, done. It's just beating your head against a piece of brickwork and then blaming the wall for your headache. Yeah, so don't be, a, uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of to ask for help. If people try and punish you for it, get different people. It's a, their problem, not yours. Paul, final words. I was really interested hearing what you're saying there in the terms of, of, of what coaching is to many people. It's an opportunity, or it's, I'd love it if we could end up in an environment where people are seeing it as an opportunity, coaching opportunity to help me get from where I am to where I want to be. Uh, as simple as that, as opposed to it's a it's a therapeutic process. Yes, there is some therapy sometimes involved in that to, to let go of some stuff in the past. But ultimately, in order to get where you want to be, coaching can support you in that journey. Excellent. Paul Ward, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus, for inviting me. My pleasure. Tell me, what would you recommend people do in terms of reading, watching, listening to help them either get onto the coaching journey or to improve their ability to coach? I obviously provide my own training and coaching to, to support people on that journey. Many people I've worked with as clients have ended up becoming trained in coaching or NLP um, themselves. So I provide that level of training as well as the motivational maps. So look at um, all those opportunities to then helping you gain a, a kind of a, an idea of who you want to help, how you want to help them, and ensure that you are um, uh, helping to move them along their journey to where they want to be, as opposed to, I find it difficult myself to set up coaching plans. So maybe don't start with coaching plans, just start with the intention of helping people to move them to where they want to be. <laughs> Excellent. Um, if anyone is interested in 
taking the motivational map. Both Paul and I are qualified in it. We're very happy to help. And they are incredibly insightful. And they, they will help you understand very, very quickly why you are stuck and which aspects of your work life are not really satisfying you or where you are being, where your soul is really being fed. And that can be incredibly powerful. And if you have teams, they're also incredibly potent. Paul, how can people get hold of you? I guess the simplest ways of describing that, my website, blacktopcoaching.com, but certainly paul at blacktopcoaching.com is my email. Follow me on LinkedIn. Be really happy to have conversations with people about maps, NLP, coaching in general, either becoming a coach, supporting them in that journey, or coaching themselves or their teams. Excellent. Paul Ward, thank you. Thank you very much. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the conversation, you found it useful or insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you feel the urge, go to Apple Podcasts, scroll down just below the fold, and leave an honest review. Now, if you're the owner or the CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million mark, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve genuine, sustainable hypergrowth with highly engaged and highly productive marketing, sales, customer success, and account growth teams, and you want clients who stick with you year after year, decade after decade, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com, or you can direct message me on LinkedIn. And for those of you who might be unfamiliar yet with the uh, global community we've launched, Sales of Force for Good, our mission is to remind us why we exist, which is because of, not in spite of the customer. It's to serve them and to raise sales as a profession and make it an aspirational career choice. If you want to be part of that movement, then please do get in touch with me as well. We're going to be running a number of events on Clubhouse, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, and locally when the lockdown gets lifted. So do get in touch. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.